Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. My name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Romans. We will be in Romans chapter 11. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can find Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we would love to give one to you as a gift. We have those on the table in the back. You can grab one of those before you leave. And all the scripture references that we'll be looking at will be on the screen behind me. Uh, Now, before we dig into God's Word, I want to uh, just go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, I'm working through a little bit of a cold today, so I'm going to ask that God would give me strength and uh, just clarity of mind as we seek to discuss some complex passages and great truths about who God is. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that we get to gather and know that you speak. God, you speak through your word. Lord, you speak ultimately through your son. And that's why we're here. We're here to worship you. So God, we ask that uh, we would be mindful of who you are as we examine your word. Lord, that our hearts would be moved to worship, that you would stir our affections to walk out of these doors differently than we came in and that you would be our focus, that we would fix our eyes on you, and that we would glorify you with all of our being. For from you and through you and to you are all things for your glory forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you, if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be in verses 11 through 36 of Romans chapter 11. Uh, now, many scholars agree that Romans 9 through 11 are some of the most theologically dense chapters of any of Paul's writing. And I think for each of us, there is this temptation maybe to brush past or just to skip over uh, some of those things that can be theologically complex or even controversial in the church. Uh, where there might be some, some debates or differences of opinion or interpretation. And so we think, well, maybe we just, just like kind of fast forward through these things and, and not talk about them at length. But what happens if you don't focus on the deep things of God? What is lost if you don't take the time to slow down and wrestle with some of these things that are talked about in regards to who God is? Perhaps you miss some of the beauty that is found in the attributes of God, in His character. You shortchange yourself on how well you know the God of the Bible, the God that you have a personal relationship with. You see, through Romans 9 through 11, we talk about these these attributes and actions of God that magnify His sovereignty, His mercy, His justice, and His steadfast love. We don't want to neglect the deep things of God because we want to know God more. Growing up near Panama City Beach, a couple times a summer, my dad and I, we would uh, grab our snorkeling gear and we would head out to uh, this place called the Jetties. And we would put on, you know, our snorkeling masks and our flippers and we would head out and, and we would just keep swimming past kind of the first set of rocks because we wanted to get to where the water was a little bit darker and the reefs were a little bit deeper. And then whenever we got over a reef that we could tell was, you know, maybe 8, 12 feet down, uh, we, would, we would put our heads underwater, we would kick our flippers, and we would go down. And you were immersed in just a, just a, couple, just a couple moments, you're immersed in 
an ecosystem that is entirely foreign. You're seeing fish of bright colors that you couldn't observe from the surface, swirling reefs that uh, you couldn't see if you were just standing at the top of the boat. There was beauty in the deep that you couldn't observe from the surface. And I think Paul in Romans 11 is going to say something similar as he gets to the end of this three-chapter section. He's saying that there is a beauty in the deep that is worth diving into, which is why he he bursts into a poem, a song of praise at the end of chapter 11, saying, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. There is a great beauty in the deep things of God. So let's not settle for what can just be observed from the surface. We want to know our God better. And what better place to look than Romans chapter 11. If I was to give a a theme to this sermon, it would be this. That God's global plan of redemption reveals His mercy and wisdom. God's global plan of redemption serves to reveal His mercy and His wisdom. Now, by way of reminder, Paul the Apostle is writing this letter to the church in Rome roughly 60 years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so, this is still a fairly young church. He's writing to them about some theological issues. He's writing them to handle some of the tension between both Jewish and Gentile believers that are now made into one, as the passage that Paul just read stated. And in our time together, I hope to show you a a declaration that we're going to see in verses 11 through 12, and then three directives that flow from this passage. And a passage that uh, by some can be considered really complex, I just wanted to give you some simple applications that we can draw, some timeless principles from a text like this. Let's begin by reading verses 11 through 12 together. The Word of God says this, So I ask… Did they stumble, speaking about ethnic Israelites, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Here's the declaration from these two verses that God's plan of salvation can't be stopped by humanity's sin. God's plan of salvation can't be thwarted, can't be stopped, can't be thrown off course by humanity's sin. We're actually going to see God's plan in the midst of it. Now, let me take you back to where chapter 11 began in verse 1. Paul's asking the question. He often leads the reader by asking questions. He leads the hearer by asking rhetorical questions. Uh, So, he says, has God rejected the people of Israel? He says, by no means. God has not rejected ethnic Israel. Now, this would have been the question because by and large, those who are coming to faith in Christ and making up the church as the promises from Judaism are fulfilled in Christ are Gentiles, non-Jews. That was unexpected. And so, the question is, has God rejected the people of Israel? And Paul says, no. Now, what's the first proof? Paul says, I myself am an Israelite. 
I'm one of the apostles. I'm proof that God hasn't rejected ethnic Israel. Then he, he goes back to the story of Elijah the prophet and says, even whenever it appeared that there was no one following God in Israel, there were still 7,000 that didn't bow their knee to Baal. God has always preserved a remnant of His people of ethnic Israel because He made covenant promises to them which He will be faithful to uphold. And so then the question became that Paul addresses in verses 7 through 10, well, if that's true, then then why is the church primarily not made up of uh, Jews instead of Gentiles? And so, Paul is going to explain that a partial hardening has, has come upon the majority of the Jewish people to where they haven't seen that Christ is the fulfillment, that He is the Messiah that they had been waiting on. Now, from our finite perspective, it's difficult to understand how this could be a good thing. Why would this be the case? But praise God, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and in verses 11 through 36, he's going to give us the explanation. I could summarize it like this. He's going to say that God has brought a temporary partial hardening upon ethnic Israel for a time being so that Gentiles could be welcomed in. Because perhaps if if Jews in wholesale, whenever Christ came, said, this is our Messiah, this is the one who has come, then the Gentiles would think, oh, Christianity is, is just a continuation of Judaism, and the promises of, of being able to have a relationship with God are not something that is accessible to us, but something that is only available to ethnic Israel. Well, what we're going to see today is that God in His sovereign mercy has placed a partial, temporary hardening upon ethnic Israel for the purpose of, of being able to bring Gentiles in, people that don't have a Jewish ethnic heritage like myself and like many of you. But, but in God's sovereignty, what He's going to do is He is going to one day create a, a holy jealousy, not a sinful jealousy, a holy jealousy among a mass number of Jews, and they're going to say, we want back in on the promises of God. We see that Christ is the Messiah that we have waited on. And God, before Christ returns, is going to do this remarkable thing where He brings both Gentiles and Jews in to one giant family that is called the church. And then Christ will return, and every aspect of what Christ is doing in His redemptive plan will serve to bring us good in salvation and glory to God. And so, that's, that's the summary of what is taking place here and how he's going to explain God's good plan in all of this. Now, with that being the case and kind of an overview given, let's dig in here to verse 11. Paul asks, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Let's rephrase Paul's question in another way. He says, is the story over for Israel? Right? The end of verse 10 is their backs are bent forever. They're, they've rejected Christ. Is, is the story of Israel over forever? Paul's saying, by no means. There's still more of this story to be written. God's not giving up on His covenant people. Now, let's pause right here and, and gain some wisdom from this. What does this teach us about God? Then it, that when it looks like all hope is lost, 
And, and sin has made it to where you are beyond recovery, God is still at work. Whenever it looks like the last page of the last chapter of the book on your life has been written, God is still at work. Isn't that just like God? I mean, think about the, the day that Christ was crucified. Is there anything that feels more final than the Son of God hanging upon the cross, uttering, it is finished, and breathing His last breath? Is there anything that appears more final than the Savior of the world being laid in a cold, dark tomb alone and lifeless? That didn't feel like victory for the fear-ridden disciples. But the story wasn't over, because what do we know? That three days later, that stone was rolled away that Christ was triumphantly alive, that He was risen, and He is now reigning, declaring that He has victory over sin, Satan, and death, that God was still at work when it seemed like all hope was lost. That's what we find here. This is the good news for Israel, and this is the good news for each and every one of us. Think about the woman who had the discharge of blood, who had gone to every single doctor and spent every single penny she had. It seemed like there was no hope for her. No sign of healing would come, no sense of progress. But what happened when she encountered Christ? She touched the hem of His garment and immediately was changed. How many of us in this room are evidence that God was still at work when we thought our story was over? That whenever we thought that addiction or conflict in our marriage or a struggle with sin was going to have the last word. God kept writing with a quill dipped in the ink of God's grace. God kept writing your story. That God put a comma where you might have put a period. There are people in this room that were once at a point so low that they tried to take their own life. And I praise God that you're here because God wasn't done. There are people who walked in this morning wondering, does God have anything to say to me? Does God have anything to say to someone that's messed up like me, someone that's hurting like me, someone who has been abused like me, someone who struggles with the sin I struggle with? Does God have anything to say to me? He says, look at the empty tomb. Because the tomb of Christ is empty, anything is possible. And because Christ died to take on the burden of your sin, you can call upon His name and watch the burden of your sin, your shame, your fear, your guilt roll off your back because Christ is alive and reigning right now. See, this isn't just about Israel. If God is preserving His people in the midst of their sin, if God isn't done working when others might say all hope is lost, then you can trust in the fact that God can be gracious to you when you feel as if there is no hope. The same God that made this promise to Israel is able to save you and preserve you to the end. And so what was the purpose of this. What, what was God doing? Well, he says, through their trespass, salvation has come. There was a purpose in it all. That trespass that he's speaking of is their rejection of Christ. 
Though the majority of Christ, or majority of Israel has rejected Christ, it is through their rejection that salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, why would God do this? He says that it's so as to make Israel jealous. It's to create this sense of holy jealousy to where they say, wait, the Gentiles are now in on the covenant promises that that we've been celebrating through feasts and festivals and, and customs and rituals. We want, we want in on this. I, I almost wonder if, as Paul was, was standing near when Stephen, the first martyr, was murdered, if God planted a seed of holy discontentment in his self-righteous heart. Now, Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, so he's not a Gentile. But, but I, I just think about this holy jealousy as Paul, before his conversion, is persecuting the church. He's trying to stamp out the church, zealous in every single way, and then sees Stephen, one of the first deacons, there after boldly proclaiming the gospel. And others say he's committed a heresy. He, he begins to, to, to get hit with stones. And yet Stephen the martyr has this resolve. He has a, a sense of calm that could only come from locking eyes with the Messiah who was above in heaven. You think, you think maybe for a moment Paul said, I've never had that. I want that. What kind of relationship with God does he have that in the midst of being murder, he could have a divinely infused sense of calm and rest as he delivers his soul up to God? Does your relationship with God make the gospel desirable to others. That's what God is saying through the pen of Paul here. He says, the Gentiles received salvation to us to make Israel jealous in a good way of their relationship with God. Let me give the strangest sermon application I've ever given. Go make people jealous of you. Now, that's the shocking way to say it, right? But you should live in such a way that your relationship with God is attractive to where the devout Muslim looks at you, and, and this is maybe someone that you're friends with, and you're confessing your sin and talking about how you're, you're talking to God about it and, and confessing it to Jesus, and they become perplexed that you would run to God in the midst of your sin and not from Him, but only the one true God is gracious. What about about your Roman Catholic friend, would they see that the gospel is desirable as your good works flow from the acceptance that you have already received in the finished work of Christ and not for the acceptance that you hope to gain so you don't go to purgatory? What about the atheist or the agnostic? Could they look at your life and see that there is a sense of purpose there's a sense of rest that can, that can come only from simultaneously knowing that God governs all things, but personally cares about you. Now, if you, if you come into this room and, and you're wearing any of those labels, be it the Muslim, the Roman Catholic, the atheist, or agnostic, I want you to know that you're, you're in the right place. It's a great place for you. I'm not saying these things to judge you, but because I love you. And I want you to have a relationship with the God that I know and the Jesus that died for me and died for you. We should make 
the gospel desirable to others, that they would have this kind of holy discontentment, this beautiful jealousy that leads them into a relationship with God. You see, the gospel should be attractive in our lives so that other people would want it too. As we continue through this passage, we look at verse 12, and it says, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, that's another way to say the Gentiles, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I think it's important to ask, what does it mean by full inclusion here? And there are three different interpretations, um, and I'm going to tell you kind of where I land, and, and you can pick which interpretation you believe is faithful. Um, the, the first one would be that all Jews will be fully included um, and will be redeemed, resurrected to be forever with God uh, throughout all generations, okay? Now, here's one of the reasons that I would reject that view is because we know that there were Jews during the time of Christ and even before that rejected Christ, um, that did not walk in accordance with God's law. Uh, so, how were Old Testament Jews saved? They were saved, and the promises foretold about the Messiah who would come and by faith in God. How are New Testament Jews saved? They are saved by placing their faith and the promises fulfilled in Christ. And so we wouldn't say, well, this is just all Jews forever throughout all generations. Um, Now, you could say that this is all Jews that will be living in that last generation before Christ comes. I think that would be a plausible way to interpret this. Um, You could also say that this full inclusion is pointing to all ethnic Jews who have placed their faith in God, um, ultimately in Christ throughout all generations, uh, so that being past, present, and future, believing that there will one day be a large mass number before Christ returns uh, where ethnic Jews will, in a, in a large-scale way, place their faith in Christ. And, and that's the view that I hold because uh, it shows God's faithfulness in the past and also that God is going to do something in accordance with what we read here in Romans 11. That's kind of the declaration. That's, that's the summary of all that Paul is going to continue to say. I want to give you three directives as we continue this passage. One, be grateful because your salvation doesn't make you superior to others. Be, be grateful, be humble, be thankful that you now have life in Christ because your salvation is a gift. It doesn't make you superior to others. Let's look at verses 13 through 24, and I'll show you where I'm coming from. Paul says, now I am speaking to you, Gentiles. He's addressing the Gentiles in the church directly. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear." 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? I want you to see here that you should be grateful because your salvation doesn't make you superior to others. If you're among the Gentiles that Paul is speaking to here. Now imagine all of these letters were read aloud in the church. What would it have been like as you have Jews and Gentiles both sitting together as this letter is being written? Would there be some tension? Maybe there were some Gentiles in the church that were getting kind of arrogant and boastful about their relationship with the Lord. Could that not be why Paul is writing this? He says directly in verse 13, I am speaking to you Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, even though he had a Jewish background. That's one of the ways that, that God called him to a specific people, and, and he primarily did ministry in, in places that were made up of a lot of Gentile believers. Now, in verse 15, we're going to find that Paul makes another argument. Verse 14, he kind of refers back to the holy jealousy that I talked about earlier. Then in verse 15, he says, for if their rejection, if their rejection of Christ means the reconciliation of the world by a lot of Gentiles believing in Christ, then what will their acceptance mean whenever many Jews place their faith in Christ? What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I first read this, I was immediately reminded of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, right? What, what will it mean but their life from the dead? Do you remember the story in Ezekiel 37? God gives Ezekiel a, a vision. He takes him, and there's this valley that's just skeletons of dry bones as far as the eye could see. And God says, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. Maybe, maybe Ezekiel is a little bit hesitant to give the answer. And then, and then what does God say? He says, speak to these bones. Say, hear the word of God and prophesy. And what happens as Ezekiel begins to speak over these bones? The bones begin to rattle. Uh, this once silent valley is now full of the sound of snaps and clicks as joints are coming together. Then these joints and bones are covered with muscles, ligaments, and tendons. The muscles are then covered with flesh, and all of these now people are standing upright, yet lifeless. And then God says, speak, that I will place my spirit within them. And then they come to life, a resurrection from death to life. And then what does God say of these people through Ezekiel? He says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. This was a dark time in Israel's history. But then what did God say? 
I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David, who is that Christ, shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. Who is that? The Lord Jesus. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This prophecy is fulfilled not just in the reception of eternal life in relationship with God. This is also an eschatological hope. Whenever Paul says, what does their acceptance mean but from life from the dead? That one day when Christ returns, that both Jew and Gentile, one family that belongs to God will be raised and have glorified physical bodies to spend forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a promise that is being given here. So as Paul continues, he then gives this analogy, two analogies, in verse 16. He says, if the dough offered and the first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. I don't want to spend much time here, but let's think about our Old Testament background a little bit. What, is, what are first fruits? Well, whenever you were someone in agriculture, which was most people during this time period, you would take the first fruits, the very beginning of your harvest, and you would offer it to God as a sign that He takes priority in your life, um, that He is worthy to be worshiped with your first and best, and also that you are trusting God to provide for the rest of the harvest that is still to come. It's all holy to God. And so, what, what Paul is saying here is, because of the first fruits is holy, so the rest will be holy. He's about to say, because of the root is holy, the rest of the branches will be holy. Now, what's the first fruit? What is the root? Because of what he's going to say in verse 28, we interpret this as the patriarchs. Because of those that God made promises to, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he will be faithful to all of Israel, and we will see that fulfilled in the last days. We continue through this passage seeing that we should not think ourselves superior because of the salvation that we have received. And in verses 17 through 24, Paul is going to speak rather sternly to Gentiles in the church about their tendency to be arrogant over the salvation that they have received. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off, he's comparing the people of God to an olive tree. He's saying because of some of the, the natural ethnic Israelite branches were broken off, although you, a wild olive shoot, a Gentile were grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. What he's saying here is that your salvation is a gift that you did not deserve. And as a gift that you have received, you have no reason to boast over others in regards to it. Instead, this should produce a, an attitude of humility. I don't deserve to be here. Right? I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up practicing the Passover. I didn't, I didn't grow up knowing these customs, but I mean, this is how the Gentiles in the church would have felt. I, I mean, I, the Gentile in the church would have said, I, I grew up worshiping Zeus, Aphrodite. We had idols all over our home. And now look at me. I belong to Christ. I'm going to spend forever with God. 
don't be arrogant. You don't deserve to be here. None of us deserve to be here. This is freely of God's choosing. We were not impressive in the least. You see, Paul actually says something similar in Romans chapter 2 to the Jews. He tells them, hey, you don't be arrogant to the Gentiles that are in here just because you are familiar with the prophecies, because of the, the promises and the prophecies that you had received. Well, what does this show us? <laughs> that, that the heart problem in all of us has absolutely nothing to do with our religious background or ethnic identity that all of us came from Adam, and because of that, all of us have this inner tendency to think that we are better than other people. And so, what did God tell Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 24? I didn't choose you because you're the greatest. No, I actually chose the nation of Israel because you were the smallest, because you were the weakest, because if anyone looked at you and the other military might of nations around you, they'd say, there's no way. But people would look at you and what I would do through you, and they would magnify me. That's why God chose Israel. And then we come to the New Testament. What does Paul say to the church at Corinth? He says, now remember your beginning. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were wise. You didn't have a lot of power. You weren't perfect. You didn't have it all together. And yet God has chosen what is weak to shame the wisdom of this world to show that through the death and resurrection of the God-man, He could bring life and create royalty out of a bunch of messed up rebels. Don't be arrogant. This is all for God's glory. And so we read a passage like this and we say, well, what is our response? It should be gratitude. It should be praise. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So Paul says in verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. What is, what is he saying? He's saying that God is both kind and severe, that God is kind to those who with repentant hearts fall before him and say, I have no hope for righteousness in myself. He says, that's what the Gentiles that have been welcomed into the church did. And any Jew that does the same thing, that comes and, and repents and places their faith in Christ, they'll be saved all the same. These natural branches will be grafted back in, and those wild olive shoots that have been grafted in, they won't be taken away. But those who prove through their arrogance that they don't actually have a heart that has been changed by God, they will be cast off. They will not be welcomed into this group who is the people of God. This brings us to our second directive. We share the gospel because our salvation makes us a part of God's global and eternal plan. This is a complex passage, but a simple application. Because God's plan is both for Jew and Gentile, because it is both eternal and global, your role in it is to share the same gospel that you have received. In verse 25, we see that the gospel is called this mystery. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Now, this mystery is something that has been hidden throughout the ages and is now revealed through Scripture. It says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, we know that that's not every single Gentile that has ever existed. That's the fullness of the elect Gentiles. Once they come in, what will God do? 
In this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. That one day all of Israel, which I believe is a majority of ethnic Israel before the return of Christ, they will all be saved. Now, there are a couple different ways that uh, you could interpret all of Israel, um, which, I, which I referenced earlier. But maybe you're wondering, okay, uh, you know, how do, I, how do I fit this into my end-time view? Uh, well, here's the great thing. And some of this, you like, you're like, I don't know. I don't really care. If that's you, that's okay. These are things worth studying but not worth debating. But here's what you should know. You don't have to be uh, a dispensationalist to hold to this view that God will save the majority of Jews in the last day. Um, you can hold basically any millennial view and believe that God will save the majority of the Jews in the last day before Christ's return. Now, you can nuance it. You can get out your charts and graphs if you want to, but this interpretation of Romans 11 is faithful to any of those end times views because it's right here in Scripture. Now, maybe you're wondering, okay, why is it? Let's nerd out for a little bit. Please don't let me lose you. But maybe you're wondering, okay, why is it that Paul in Romans 9 says not all Israel is Israel? And now he's saying all Israel will be saved. Well, you have to recognize that through context, sometimes Israel is being used as a spiritual descriptor of all the people of God that belong to God. Because the promises that were made throughout Israel, are many of them are fulfilled in and through the church. Why? Because Israel, ethnic Israel who trust in Christ, they're grafted into the church. We're all a part of the church. And the Gentile benefits from receiving the promises that were made to Israel, like the one in Ezekiel 36, that God would pour out His Spirit. Well, that wasn't just for the Jews. It certainly applied to the Jews that believe, but also is a promise that applies to the Gentiles who receive Christ. Perhaps a better way to explain it would be through what Paul says in Romans 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so, being a Jew is not simply a matter of, of ethnic identity. It's also a matter of the heart. And so, there will be a day that God calls all of Israel, and all who are Jewish in ethnicity, who trust in Christ, will be saved. And those who are Gentile, who trust in Christ, they've graft, been grafted in as the wild olive shoot that is now a part of this olive tree, which is all encompassed in the church which is why Galatians 6.16, 6, Paul says that the church is the Israel of God. Now, this is why I make this distinction, because some well-meaning Christians make a drastic error here, and perhaps this could step on some toes, but I don't think so, not in this room, where they believe that there will be this unique salvation that will come to Jews through some other means than trusting in Christ. But I want to show you from Romans 11 why there is no unique salvation, but that anyone who comes to the Father comes through Christ. That's John 14, 6, right? There's only one key that unlocks this door, and He is Christ. Well, Isaiah 59, 20 and 21 is quoted in 26 and 27. It says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, here's what's interesting. 
This passage is being quoted from Isaiah 59 whenever they were in the midst of dark rebellion, and it seemed like there would be no hope for salvation. But whenever it's written in Isaiah 59, there's a phrase that's different from what you just read in verse 26. It says that the deliverer will come to Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Why? Because Zion was viewed as the city of Jerusalem. And the promise in Isaiah 59 is that Christ would come to Jerusalem to take away the people's sins. And that promise was fulfilled. Now Paul is looking at that prophecy made by Isaiah again, and he is saying that there is a future day that the deliverer, Christ alone, will come from Zion, from the throne of heaven. And on that day, all who have received him will we'll experience life in his name. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, that is Israel, and this will be my covenant with them that I take away their sins. That this promise was made and fulfilled by Christ, and it will one day again be fulfilled by Christ in his coming. Verses 28 through 32, once again, highlight the faithfulness of God. It says, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. It's for a little while. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God is keeping his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and will, will one day be fulfilled. In verse 29, it says, For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God will always be faithful to his promises. Humanity's sin can't stop God's plan of salvation. He gives grace to each and every person that believes. In verses 30 through 32, he magnifies his mercy. That's why you see the word mercy four times. If you're ever reading through Scripture and you see a word repeated again and again, underline it, highlight it. If you're the kind of people that underline and highlight in your Bible, I know some of you are purists, that's okay. But just know, this is something that, that God wants me to see. He's speaking to the Gentiles. He says, just at one time you were disobedient to, to God, but now I've received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. I, I don't fully understand this. I'm just going to admit that, right? That, that God is able to say that his good plan, a part of his good plan, is that both Jew and Gentile would have a rebellious, disobedient heart that would stray from him so that it would magnify his mercy to them. Because if there was no sin in the world, if we did not deserve judgment, we would not have any capacity to understand God's mercy. Why? Because mercy is not getting what you deserve. And what do we deserve? We deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. But whenever God sends his son because we are sinners, we see that God is merciful when God gives grace to those who don't deserve it, we see that God is gracious. There are aspects of God's character that would be unobservable to us if there was not sin and brokenness in the world. And so what, what he is saying here is that because this salvation is made known to you, you make it known to others because it's a global and eternal plan of salvation for all who believe. And here's, here's the mind-blowing application of this. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone who believes can get in on this. 
I, I know that there's a mix of people in here, people who didn't grow up in church, people who did grow up in church. Uh, I grew up going to Sunday school every single Sunday, and uh, one of the songs that we often sang was Father Abraham. Now, maybe you know that, maybe you don't. It's like a Christian version of the hokey pokey, I feel like, you know, like you're putting your right hand, left hand in, whew, cold medicine. Um, you're putting your left hand in, your left hand out. All right, but you, you say Father Abraham had many sons, many sons, and I am one of them. Um, I'm one of them. I, I don't remember. You, yeah, there we go. We got it. Um, it's there, okay? Uh, now, here's the deal. How could I, as as this kid who grew up in backwoods of Panama City, Florida, who could not have pointed to Jerusalem on the map, um, had, had no way to trace my family tree to any Israelite tribe, how could I sing, Father Abraham has many sons, many sons, and I am one of them? Because God has fulfilled His promise through Christ so that anyone who believes in Him is now grafted into the family of God. That you can read the story of Abraham in your Old Testament and rejoice that whenever Abraham was standing under that starry sky and God said, try to number them, that you were among those number of stars. That God's eternal plan included you and that God's eternal plan could include that person next to you. That this is a global eternal plan, and because we don't deserve to be in on it, anyone can get in on it. And so it makes us zealous to invite that friend that we sit next to at work to come to church with us next Sunday. It makes us zealous, bold, to ask the neighbor as, as you're walking your dog, hey, is there any way that I can be praying for you this week and then following up the next week? It, it, it gives you more courage to say, in the same way that God once called me, could He be calling my family member? Would I text them this afternoon and say, hey, would you want to meet up every other week and just read through the book of John together? That if God would welcome a sinner like me into His family, then would I be willing to share the gospel with someone else who might believe? Because God's plan of salvation is global. Third and finally, Worship, because your primary goal is to bring glory to God. That's what Paul does here in verses 33 through 36. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Worship, because your primary goal, the reason that you exist, is to bring glory to God. Well, we've talked about so many deep things, even this morning. You think through chapters 9 through 11, oh man, we've been all over the place. What do you do with that? We can't wrap our minds around it. And Paul here gets to this moment where he's talked about all of these things. He just, he's undone. He says, oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. My, my finite IQ can't contain all that He is. This human heart can't grasp the depths of His greatness. And so we worship. Think about all that He said here. We worship a God that can disclose the future of how all that will unfold because He governs every single second of it. Is that a comfort of you? 
Does that replace the, the sand under your feet with a little bit of concrete? God governs everything, and He cares for you. That's why He can tell us what's going to happen in the future. Paul's theology here produces doxology. We've said that before. Doxology, doxa, it's this Greek word that means glory, majesty, praise. His study of God motivates praise from his heart that flows from his lips. His theology leads him to doxology because he realizes that God is deeper and greater than his mind could ever comprehend. Light years can measure the expanse of space. Sonar systems can tell us just how deep the sea is, but there is no way to measure the majesty of God. We serve a God so great that He cannot be exaggerated, that there is no words in the human language that can do His glory justice. Paul's doxology presents two theological descriptors, attributes of God, both His incomprehensibility and His knowability. What does that mean? That God is incomprehensible. We'll never ex exhaust the fullness of who He is, and yet in His grace and mercy, He's knowable. He speaks to us in human language. He condescends through creation to tell us a little bit about who He is. The sun rises every morning just so that we would know that God never changes. And God made Himself most knowable through the person of Christ. How, how deep is His riches, His wisdom, the knowledge of God? His wisdom, His knowledge, His riches seen in the fact that we were dead in our sin. And the only one who can forgive sin is God Himself. That humanity had rebelled against a holy God, and the only ones that could bear that penalty would be man himself. So what would God do? What would God's solution, His rich, wise, and knowledgeable solution be to send the Son of God, that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself would take on flesh, the God-man, both as the only one able to forgive our sin and the only one able to absorb it in His body so that upon the tree, we sinful humans would be reconciled to holy God. So we say how unsearchable are His ways, how inscrutable are His judgments. Isaiah 40, 13 is quoted, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? When it looked like Babylon was gonna have the final victory, God said, I'm not done. You're not my counselor. I'm still at work. And he was faithful. Job 41, 11, God says, I haven't been given a gift that I'm now entitled or, or responsible, obligated to repay. And Paul says in verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Here we find that the purpose of everything exists. God created everything for from Him and through Him. God sustains everything. Everything is upheld by the word of His power. To Him, everything exists for the purpose of bringing God glory. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. For His glory forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If you're looking for a purpose statement, that's it. Student, this week... From Him and through Him and to Him are all things in the classroom, in your assignments, as you read through the syllabus, as you engage your friends. Husbands, wives, from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things in your marriage, in the way that you talk, in the way that you pray for one another. 
and your friendships and the words that you speak from him and through him and to him are all things. How can you minister to the brother and sister in Christ? How can you share the gospel to those who don't know him yet? Oaks Church, hear everything we do from holding the door to sending missionaries across the world for from him and through him and to him are all things for the glory of God forever. Amen. We can say with Paul now what we will one day sing through eternity. All things exist for his glory forever. Amen. We won't settle for what we can see from the surface because there is great beauty in the deep things of God. Let's pray.